Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. We all have secrets, internal thoughts we keep to ourselves, actions and behaviors we carry out in private that no one else knows about. Part of those internal personal thoughts are fantasies, dreams, and desires that we don't always share. But when those work together, when they have a dark undercurrent and come tumbling out of the mind and into real life, the outcome is never a good one. In January 2006, the town of Hopkinton in Massachusetts became the scene of a heartbreaking and shocking tragedy that sparked attention in both America and the UK. In a small, quiet, family-oriented cul-de-sac, just under five miles from the town center, a young family had just began their new lives in Massachusetts 
with their nine-month-old baby, Lily. Within weeks, two family members would be dead, and the other nowhere to be found. Secrets and lies, even those kept within the depths of darkness and firmly behind the mask of normality, have a way of spilling out in the end. And when they do, it changes everything. I know it's difficult. I mean, it seems so clear-cut, and yet it just doesn't make sense. There just seems so much... um, I just seen so much blood around Lily. It was just a normal, it's just a normal day. On Saturday, January 20th, 2006, with snow on the ground and a cold chill in the air, 56-year-old Priscilla Matarazzo jumped into her car outside of her home in Carver. She was excited. After a long week at work as a medical assistant, She was going to spend the afternoon with her daughter, Rachel, and nine-month-old granddaughter, Lillian. Rachel and her husband, Neil Entwistle, who were both 27 years old, had just weeks ago moved into a new house with baby Lily. This afternoon visit had been planned a few days earlier to help the family settle in some more as they adjusted to their new surroundings. Priscilla's friend Terry was joining them. She climbed into the passenger seat with Priscilla, and they set off. Their destination was Hopkinton, a town in Middlesex County, in Massachusetts, about 30 miles away from Boston. It took them an hour to reach number six Cubs Path, pulling up to a park gently in the driveway. Before them were two garage doors side by side, tucked underneath the imposing house at one end with a large window above. Predominantly painted gray, The horizontal lines of the wood slats contrasted with the white window frames and deep red-colored front door. It was a beautiful home in a quiet cul-de-sac of similar houses, all with mature gardens lush with trees and flowering plants. There was plenty of space for a growing family. As Priscilla and Terry arrived, they were surprised not to see Rachel bounding out the door to greet them. Priscilla went to the front door to knock and ring on the bell, and let her know how they had arrived. Faintly, she could see two lights inside. There was no movement inside the house, and no one came to the door. I I pulled down near the garage. Usually, uh, Rachel would come out to greet us. Um, She didn't, so I went and knocked on the the front door. I could hear the dog barking. Um, Went around to the back of the house, and... Uh, We could look in the sliders. Nothing, no one. It was the same as the last time I was there. The slider was locked. There were stairs going um, up to a screened-in porch from the sliders. I went up and tried that door, but that door was locked right at the top of the stairs. Um, We got back in the car and tried calling the house. No one answered the phone. We left a message. We waited longer. I called Joe to see if he had heard from Rachel or Neil. I drove, um, I left their house and drove around within their neighborhood just to kill time or just to, and 
drove back to their house and parked in front of the house. I waited till about 2.30. I put a note on the door um, just uh, asking if she had forgotten that we were coming and um, just to call me. The we decided to go back and get some lunch and wait to see if they came back and called us. We got some lunch at the, a little pizza place right off the highway, and we stayed there about an hour. It was about 3.30 at that time, and um, we figured even if they returned at that point, we wouldn't be able to visit much. Um, so um, we called, while we were having lunch, we called the house again to see if there was any answer. And, so we, we called again before we left the pizza place. There still wasn't any answer, so we decided to head home. Driving away, there was an uneasy feeling. Rachel had never forgotten a visit before, and they had only arranged it on Thursday that week. It was odd and unusual. But with a new house and a young baby, no one could blame her if she did. Priscilla drove home, assuming Rachel would call, once she found the note left tucked into the handle of the front door. Rachel was born and raised in Kingston, Massachusetts. Her family unit grew smaller with the death of her father when she was young, but she grew closer to her mom Priscilla and older brother Jerome. A dedicated student, after high school at Silver Lake High in Kingston, Rachel enrolled in Holy Cross College in Worcester to study for a bachelor's degree in liberal arts. When the opportunity came to spend a year of her studies at York University in the UK, she jumped at the chance. It was during this year away from home in the UK that she met the man she would go on to marry. They had met on the university rowing team, where they were both keen and active members. Neil was studying computer engineering at the university, and they soon became close and started their relationship together. Rachel returned to Massachusetts to complete her degree at Holy Cross. She wanted to be a teacher. She enrolled to study for her teaching certificate in the UK so she could teach in the British schools. Her time in the UK was spent with Neil, confirming their desire to undertake their lives together. Rachel moved to the UK so she could move in with Neil. They found a rented home in the town of Melbourne, in South Derbyshire, England. She began teaching teenagers drama and English at St. Augustine's Catholic School in Redditch, just over an hour away from their home. As their relationship blossomed, they became engaged and planned their wedding to take place in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where all of Rachel's family could be there. In August 2003, they married, staying in the U.S. with Rachel's mom, Priscilla, and stepdad, Joe Matarazzo at their home in Carver before flying back to the UK. Less than two years later, Rachel gave birth to Lillian Rose, a beautiful baby girl on April 9, 2005. The young couple had a website that Neil had built for them. It was something they updated regularly, with pictures of Lily. Family outings and holidays, both sides of the family could keep in touch and up to date with everything they were doing, and how little Lily was growing regardless of how far away they were. As Lily began to get into a routine, the couple made the big decision. They decided to relocate to Massachusetts. Rachel wanted to be near her family, 
now that she was a mother and wanted baby Lillian to get to know her family. For Neil, who was working as a computer engineer, there would be more opportunities for jobs in the U.S. And there was the potential to further his career. They were excited about the move. In the first week of August 2005, Rachel flew to Massachusetts with baby Lily, who was by now four months old. They moved in with Priscilla and Joe, whose home in Carver had plenty of room for Rachel's family to stay while they found a house of their own. Neil joined Rachel in the U.S. in September 2005, after tying up loose ends with the house in England. He spent his days at the Carver house in the office above the garage with his laptop. He had started a small company with a friend in England, called Embedded Technologies, and was continuing that work while he hunted for a job in the U.S., Joe offered to help him get anything he needed for the company in place, but Neil said he had it all under control. Joe wanted to get to know his son-in-law and offered to take him to the gun club he had recently joined. Joe had several guns in the house that he kept in pristine condition and always locked. He had two teenage sons from his previous marriage and shooting at the gun club was a hobby they all did together. Neil was keen to join in and enjoyed learning how to shoot and handle some of the guns Joe owned. Back at the house, Neil was sending out job applications and going to interviews. It seemed all was going in the right direction. Rachel spent time with her mom and extended family, introducing Lillian and enjoying being a first-time mom. In late December, Neil put down a deposit and three months' rent in advance for Six Cubs Path in Hopkinton. It was a dream home for the young family, but it didn't come cheap. At $2,700 per month, Neil told Rachel he had secured a contract for the development of tech equipment worth $100,000. It meant a paycheck of $10,000 a month. With four bedrooms and a master ensuite, the house also had a downstairs area that would be perfect for Neil's home office. In the first week of January 2006, they began moving in. Everything was looking perfect in the lives of the Entwistles. Just before 7.30 p.m. on January 20th, darkness had closed in and a close friend of Rachel's, Joanna Gately, arrived at Six Cubs Path with her sister. She was running late but they had arranged with Rachel earlier in the week to come over and go for dinner for a girly catch-up. The sisters followed an eerily similar path to what Priscilla had done, just a few hours earlier. They knocked on the door and called Rachel's cell and house phones. They too got no answer on the door or on the telephone. Joanna was worried. This wasn't like Rachel at all. After seeing Priscilla's note, and realizing Rachel hadn't been home all day, she decided to call Priscilla to see if she had heard from her. When that call came in, Priscilla realized something was very wrong. Her daughter and her family had seemingly disappeared. It was extremely unlike Rachel or Neil to just stay out of contact like this, and for no one to know where they were, especially now that they had baby Lillian. Priscilla called the Hopkinton Police Department to report her concerns. They responded by sending officers to Rachel's house to carry out a welfare check. Officer O'Neill arrived in his squad car 
began to walk around the perimeter of the house, looking for anything suspicious or out of place. Nothing jumped out at him. Sergeant Sutton arrived at Cub's path, and he too began a cursory look around the outside of the home and the grounds. With everything looking fine, they moved to gain entry into the house. Sergeant Sutton used a Blockbuster store card to pick the lock and open the front door. The officers split up and slowly walked around the house room by room. Their eyes scanned each area, looking at belongings and furniture, scanning for anything suspicious. On the first floor, there was the kitchen in the living area, plus a dedicated family room. A TV was playing softly in the background. In the kitchen, the remnants of a family meal were evident, with dishes on the table and utensils and cooking items on the work surfaces. A basset hound sat in the dog cage watching the officers every move, not sure of what to make of these people now inside her house. On the ground floor, there was an empty garage, another living space, bathroom, and office area. All showed evidence of a family still moving in and getting started, still deciding on where to put furniture and still having various belongings stacked in boxes on the floor. There were no signs of disturbances, no signs of a struggle or anything out of hand or ontoward. Upstairs on the second floor of the house, there were four bedrooms. The first at the top of the stairs was a baby's room, a crib in the corner, and classical music softly playing. If you stood still and listened carefully, its tones could be heard in most places of the house. The other two rooms hadn't been fully set up yet as guest rooms or whatever their final function would be. Sergeant Sutton found himself at the door of the family bathroom on the second floor. As he looked in, he noted water in the bathtub. Unassuming and gentle, it appeared the family had bathed the baby in the tub before they went missing. The final room the officers checked was the master bedroom. A bed in the middle of the room and a lamp next to one side was still on. The bed was unmade and messy, with white sheets and a comforter haphazardly on it. The ensuite was all in order. Sergeant Sutton and Officer O'Neill left the property and spoke with Priscilla outside. There was nothing suspicious inside the house, and everything looked in order. The white SUV owned by the Entwistles was it in the garage. Sergeant Sutton assured Priscilla... They would search the plates of the car to see if they could locate it. He gave her the numbers of local hospitals to ring around and check in case they had been in a car wreck or something. That night, Priscilla and Joe returned to their home to begin the grim task of ringing around local hospitals, asking if their daughter or son-in-law had been brought in. Joanna and her sister were so worried, they stayed outside the house at Six Cubs Path, they slept inside their car on the driveway all night in case the family came home or any news came in at all, but there was none. As Sunday, January 22nd, rolled around, concern for this family continued to rise. No one had seen or heard from Rachel or Neil since Thursday. Hopkinton police were becoming increasingly uneasy. Experience told them these kinds of situations rarely end well. At around 5 p.m. that evening, Priscilla and Joe, along with Joanna and her sister, 
went to the police station to file missing person reports. They had managed to get the garage door code of the house from a neighbor, and Joanna and her sister had been inside to look around for anything that might help. Joanna took Sally the dog out and walked her around outside before returning to her dog bed. Hopkinton police officers passed the information on to the detectives and a decision was made to go back to the house. Two adults and a nine-month-old baby had vanished, and they needed to find out where they were. They never expected to find what they did. Uh, I then um, was contacted by Detective Van Rotten, so I stayed there in the neighborhood. I waited uh, at 6 Cubs Path for Officer Van, uh, Detective Van Rotten to arrive. We decided to uh, re-enter the house. He had obtained the garage door code from Joanna Gately uh, at the station, and we used that to go in the garage door instead of going back in through the front door like I had the previous night. We then went uh, through a doorway into the rest of the finished basement. I noticed uh, a, a slight odor in the basement. When I got to the first floor, I noticed the odor was stronger, and I also noticed that it was an odor that was not present in that part of the house when I was there the night before. Everything appeared exactly the way I had left it. We didn't stay on the first floor as planned. We uh, continued up to the second floor, uh, basically following the odor. Next. We then uh, went into the master bedroom. I went left as I came in the door, uh, walking across the foot of the bed, around to the other side of the bed. On the other side of the bed, I noticed uh, a pair of what appeared to be uh, reading glasses, as well as what appeared to be a woman's wristwatch on the carpet next to the bed. I then lifted the corner of the comforter closest to me. I, I didn't lift it very high, um, approximately six inches to a foot at the most. I observed uh, what appeared to be an adult foot. I lowered the comforter. I called to Detective Van Ralton to come to me. I lifted it a second time exactly the same way I had the first time to show him what I had seen. We then both made our way to the opposite corner of the bed. I then lifted the comforter at that corner uh, in a similar manner as I had on the other side of the bed. I first observed a, um, a small baby's face. Um, I was looking down at the top of the head, the forehead, eyes, nose. As I continued to raise the comforter slightly more, I looked to the, to the right of the baby's face and saw a woman's face. I held the comforter up for a couple of seconds uh, while I had a conversation with uh, Detective Van Ralton. Um, and I lowered the comforter uh, to the exact same position it, it had been in before. We then um, immediately left the bedroom and returned to the foyer. Rachel Entwistle and her nine-month-old baby daughter Lillian were dead. In the master bedroom, their bodies had been covered with three layers of bedding, piled up to look simply like a messy bed. It was convincing enough for the police officers on the first welfare check to look in the bedroom and not to realize there was such a sinister scene underneath. Laying together there was little immediate evidence of what had ended their lives. Baby Lillian was dressed in a white baby grow with pale pink polka dots. She lay with her mother's arm around her, tucked into her mother's chest. On her baby grow, in the front of her chest, underneath Rachel's arm, was an unmistakable red stain. When the crime scene technician had arrived in the early hours of the morning, 
Inside, they were greeted by the tones of classical music, still quietly yet distinctively, playing from baby Lillian's bedroom. Um, we observed uh, both victims. Um, the, the mother, Rachel, was lying on the, she was on her left side, on the left side of the bed, facing the right side. Um, her arm, her right arm was covering, um, covering across the infant's chest. There were approximately three to four removal steps. The first one was the comforter. At that point, um, there was a white sheet covering um, Rachel, the mother, um, and a pillow was also across um, the infant Lillian's uh, face and partially on um, the adult victim uh, Rachel's uh, face also. Um, and the baby, um, Lillian was on her back, um, her head, was slightly elevated from the body. Right? There may have been a pillow underneath. When we removed the pillow from the face area of the um, infant victim, um, there was uh, reddish-brown stains on covering the other the, the side of the pillow that was up against the face of the infant. After um, photographs were taken, both 35 and digital photographs were taken of all of the removal of all of the items. Um, we needed to move the victims at taking observations. Um, of what appeared to be a puncture to the left chest above the left breast area and also some puncture, I believe two punctures to the, um, the top, the shirt that she was wearing right in that same vicinity. On the, um, we, we took note of the lividity. Um, lividity appeared to go along with the position of how we found the victim. I noticed there was what appeared to be a puncture to the left chest area of the infant. So it appeared uh, dark in color, almost like soot, um, burning. I uh, was not quite sure what it was at the time. Um, it was not evident prior to separating the victims. Um, on closer examination, um, it appeared to be a gunshot wound to me. At first, we noticed it on the um, outside sleeper. Um, we made a determination to open up the sleeper and she had on um, like a onesie, like a t-shirt underneath that. There was also a puncture right under the puncture on the sleeper. We decided to move that away and we noticed um, also that same puncture on the, the actual skin, the chest of the victim. She was rolled over onto her back and there was um, a slight, um, there, there was a, a puncture and around the puncture there was a um, what appeared to be a pooling of blood on the um, external part of the sleeper on the backside. Um, at that point, we decided, um, after a team um, discussion, we decided to have the bodies um, removed by the medical examiner's office and have them further examined at the um, medical examiner's office. Just under five miles away at the Hopkinton's Police Department on Main Street, Priscilla and Joe Matarazzo sat inside a conference room after filling out a missing persons report for Rachel, Neil, and Lily. They were informed of what officers had found in the bedroom of Six Cubs Path. As their devastation at the inexplicable loss of their daughter and granddaughter hit them, their thoughts also turned to Rachel's husband and Lillian's father, Neil, who had not yet been found. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline. Riddled with danger, 
romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. On the kitchen counter inside the house, Sergeant Sutton had found an open letter regarding the Entwistle family car. The white BMW Z3 SUV wasn't parked in its usual spot in the garage, and it wasn't on the street outside. He had taken down the vehicle identification number of the car and radioed to dispatch to get the plate information. The following morning, Monday, January 23rd, officers received notifications that the car had been located. On level 4 of the central parking garage of Boston Logan International Airport, the family's SUV had neatly parked in a parking bay, and the doors were unlocked. The driver's seat was almost fully reclined, Inside the armrest section, officers had found keys to Six Cubs Path, keys to Rachel's parents' home in Carver, and a parking receipt from the airport printed on the receipt was a date and time, Friday, January 20th, 2006, at 8.14 p.m. At 11 a.m. that Monday morning, the phone rang at the Metarazzo household in Carver. Joe answered and heard a voice he recognized, Clifford Entwistle. Neil's father was calling him from his own home and workshop, Nottinghamshire, in England. After around ten minutes, they ended the phone call with Joe, unsure what to think. His time on the phone that morning, however, had only just started. After I hung up, uh, just a couple of minutes later, uh, I received another phone call. It was Neil Entwistle. Uh, his voice was very shaky. Uh, uh, a whimpering type, I guess. He's, first he said, hi, Joe. Um, I don't know how things got like this. Friday, the 20th. He said he fed uh, Lily her breakfast, and then he left, left the house at 9 o'clock. He was gone for about two hours. Then he said he returned home around 11 o'clock, uh, when he got there, he walked around the house, and uh, then he went inside the house, and he called up to Rachel, and he was no answer. And so he said he started to uh, clean the first floor of the house, you know, clean clean the house. Then he said he went upstairs, and he went upstairs, and he found Rachel and Lily shot. It was it was just a big mess. Then he said he, he left the home and he drove down to my house in Carver. 
he said when he when he got to the house, he knew that I had guns in the house, and but he didn't have a key, couldn't get in. He said he wanted to see me and Pasilli. He said he couldn't face me. Um, he was um, kind of repeating himself a little bit, and then he said he uh, he left the, the Cava home. He drove around and. Uh, for a period of time, and then he went to uh, the airport. Uh, he was going to get a ticket at the airport. I think, yes, he said he talked to, he called his father to get a ticket. And um, he mentioned uh, uh, a couple of times about the fact that uh, he knew I had guns in the house, and and uh, I questioned him about that. I said, I asked him, why did you care that I had guns in the house? I, I asked him, uh, I said, Neil, do you, did you do this or do you know who did this? He said, no. He said, I do not. After Joe Matarazzo hung up on the phone, he found the contact card they had been given at the Hopkinton police station. On it were the details of the trooper Robert Manning from the Massachusetts State Police Assigned to Middlesex County, he was a lead investigator now on the case, assisting the Hopkinton police. Joe rang the number and told him the conversation he had just had with Neil. Trooper Manning needed to speak to Neil himself. He called the home of Neil's parents in England around 1.30 p.m. U.S. time and requested to speak with Neil. When he came onto the phone, he agreed for the conversation to be tape-recorded. Hello. Hello. Hi, is this Neil? It is, yes. Neil, this is, uh, my name is Bob Manning. I'm a trooper with the Massachusetts State Police. Hi. How are you? Uh, well. Uh, I'm calling you because we have a bad, we had some bad news from over here. Yeah. And, um, I, um, we have a, some bad news about your wife and your daughter. We, uh, we responded to the house and that they're deceased. Yeah. Do you know that? I did. You did? Yeah. And I'm calling you from the Hopkinton Police Station, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, can, you, can, you, um, can you talk to me a little bit and, and tell me how you knew that? Yes. Okay, if I just walk you through, um, if I, I talk you through what I, um, kind of how I got to this situation, and then, you know, I went out. It was, it was Friday morning. Um, we... We got up about about seven o'clock, which is what we normally do, and I, I fed Lillian. Then I wanted to go out um, just to the store to find to find some to find some computer equipment. We um, um, when I left, I left her in bed uh, with Rachel. I was gone. Maybe I think I, I came back about eleven, elevenish. Mm-hmm. And I, I walked in the, I mean, the, the house didn't look any different. I, I walked in, I, I called out to them. There was no reply. I, I thought, there was no noise. I, I went upstairs just to see where they were and thought, you know, wasn't sure what, what there was. And, and that's when I found them. I just <laughs> didn't, I, I just, I kind of looked, you know, it was obvious that, God, I had to get out of the house. I mm-hmm. uh, didn't even think. My, my, I mean, my real thought was to, to call, like Priscilla and, and Joe now. But I, um, 
didn't have you know any, any means of contacting them I didn't know so I just drove down to to their house now um, before that I I went downstairs and I I, I took one of the knives out of the, um, the the block of knives we had in the kitchen. Yes. So, you know, maybe I could, you know, but I just, I I think I pondered on that for a minute and then maybe got in the car. I mean, it could have been longer, but I, I then got in the car. You know, I, I you know, knew that Joe has um, guns in the house. I thought maybe I could, you know, finish. Um, kind of get myself, you know, that way. I uh, just it, I wanted to kind of let the emotions out, but nothing would come out. It just it, it wasn't it. It just didn't seem right, you know. There was there was just it just wasn't right. What had what I'd seen, what had just happened. Right, uh, but what what do you think? What happened to him? I don't know. I it, it has been. I've been trying to just work out what. It, it seems so clear cut, and yet just doesn't make sense. What? Did you shake them? They're in. Did you touch them? Sorry. Did you touch them at all to see if they weren't just sleeping? I let well. I was obvious with um, Lillian, but I kind of went over to Rachel. Okay. And um, but it, I just I knew it, it. There was you know no mistake, and I went over. Do they? I did pull over them. You pulled the bed sheet over them before I left. Yeah. Before you left. Yeah. Okay. I. So in other words, you pulled the bed sheet over them to cover them up? Yeah. Not off them? No, to cover them up. Okay. Why'd you do that? I don't know. It just seemed like a... I don't know why I did I just... Almost felt like I was closing them off. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why I did it. I okay. In, in that, in this whole time now, you knew you knew your wife and daughter were dead in the bed, but did you know what happened to them? Do you mean as in being shot? Is that what happened? That's what I, I think. I mean, I saw it on Lily. And, and where did you see it on Lily? Kind of on a on the chest. And what did you see? There was like a, a hole. Um, kind of like a, a, a burn mark hole. Mm-hmm. And what did you see on your wife? I didn't see anything on, on Rachel. What did you think happened to her? Well, I just did, I mean, <laughs> I just did, I just assumed the same. I just seen so much blood around Lily. Whereabouts around on Lily? All over her body? Uh, kind of like the, the the top half, yeah. I mean, there was just so much. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was kind of on a mouth and on a on a chest chest bit. Well, you could see from just standing where on the side of the bed or up close. How close were you? Oh, I was 
kind of close touching the bed. Okay, but you didn't you didn't touch the bodies at all. I I, I didn't touch now. Okay, so you, I don't so, think so you don't know if you don't you don't know if they were even still slightly breathing or anything like that. <sighs> no, I just no. The call lasted almost two hours with Trooper Manning trying to get as much information as he could from Neil. At 3,000 miles away, it was a strange conversation to have over the phone. The police in Massachusetts were faced with a mother and a baby dead inside their own home. From what appeared to be foul play, the husband and father claimed he found them dead and after contemplating taking his own life in desperation, left the country on a one-way ticket to England, his home country. Neil said he didn't know who had killed his family or why. And as they continued to process the crime scene and investigate what happened, the Matarazzos were trying to make funeral plans for Rachel and Lillian. As next of kin, Neil had authority and would have to give his permission in writing for them to be able to make the arrangements. Neil had been calling Joe every morning that week wanting to talk with him more about what was happening in the investigation. He was happy to provide them with permission they needed and faxed over signed waivers. As police officers from the Hopkinton Police Department and state troopers from the Middlesex County continued their investigation, Joe made a discovery that made his blood run cold. The set of keys he kept on his bedside drawer for his gun locks were missing. He checked for the other sets, one in his truck and the other on the shelf in the kitchen diner. Both were where they should be. None of Joe's guns were missing, but those keys should have been inside the bedside drawer. On Tuesday, January 24th, medical examiner Dr. William Zane carried out the autopsies of Rachel and Lillian Entwistle. Not seen by the crime scene technicians at the house, Rachel had a bullet wound at the top of her forehead, set back a little into her hairline. The bullet's trajectory was downwards. It shattered her skull and entered the frontal cortex of her brain. The bullet had broken into segments with two pieces found scattered across the tissue in that area. Baby Lillian had also suffered a single gunshot to her chest as she lay tucked into her mother. The bullet had gone through her tiny body, damaging her liver and kidney, exited out her back, and pierced Rachel's chest where it had come to a halt. Both gunshots were contact wounds. The muzzle of the gun had been held against Rachel's head and against baby Lillian's chest when the bullets were fired. There was no doubt what had killed Rachel and Lillian. There was nothing natural or accidental about how they died. Hi, this is Trooper Man. Thanks for Yeah, I'm sorry I called. I know it's late, but uh, we just kind of got most of the results back from the medical exam today. Okay? No, I'm glad you did. Uh, really, it's pleasing. I was trying to get some sleep on really. Um, let me just tell you about what what we what happened today, okay? okay. Um, we did complete the, the medical exam today. Okay. All right. And the doctors are the ones that determine um, cause and manner of death. Okay. All right. Um, and what we found out was that. Both um, Lillian and Rachel died from a gunshot wound. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and right now we're going with determining with we're continuing on with the investigation as suspicious. Okay. Okay. 
Um, so we're, we're considering it a foul play death. I won't do it. Pardon me? Uh, what did you say? What did you call? Okay, we're, 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 uh, um, Nine days after the gruesome discovery in the bedroom of Six Cubs Path, a wake for Rachel and Lillian was held on January 31st. The following day, more than 500 mourners flooded into St. Peter's Church in Plymouth, Massachusetts for their funeral. Mother and daughter were buried together in a joint casket surrounded by large and colorful bouquets of flowers and pink ribbons. Neil did not attend either the wake or the funeral. He remained at his parents' home in Nottinghamshire, England. The events in Massachusetts, Neil's one-way flight back to England, had not escaped the attention of the British press. They quickly identified the address of his parents' home and set up camp outside. They wanted to speak with Neil and his parents to gain information and get a good soundbite. Neil's parents were protective and fully supportive of their son. Cliff Entwistle was adamant about his son's innocence. Neil, from a very young age, uh, had a natural interest in electronics. Um, he would buy um, bits and pieces that he needed to put together to make up uh, little lights and, and it led on from there. Before Neil left school he was doing a night course at the local technical college, um, probably only about 14 years old. On school opening nights we were told that Neil was very academic, had university potential. Neil knew every bit of Lillian's routines from the very stages of waking up to the very stages of going to bed. Neil knew everything there was about Lillian that way. When you've gone through something as enormous as this, it does open things in such a big way in your life where things that before were not there suddenly can be there mm -hmm. in all sorts of different ways. And we've experienced uh, to where me and Yvonne now are as close, as close as ever. Did Neil murder his wife Rachel and his baby girl Lillian? No, he did not. Our son is innocent. There is no way on God's earth that our son committed that crime. In early February 2006, Benjamin Pryor was living in London and working for a hedge fund in the city. He had been at university in York with Neil and Rachel during her year studying in town. Neil, Rachel, Ben, and another friend, Dashiell Munding, all rode together on the boat club team at York University. The news of her death had filtered through from joint friends and news articles, leaving him devastated and horrified. He had stayed in touch with Neil on occasion since they had left York Uni, and he wanted to show his support. Bennett emailed Neil, offering his condolences and asking if there was anything he could do. A few days later, Neil called Ben at work and sounded stressed and distressed. Neil also called Dashiell and asked if he could come visit in London. He was wary of the press station permanently outside his parents' home 
and especially the impact that was having on his parents. Neil caught the train from Nottingham to London, a journey of just under two hours, happy for London to provide him with a temporary escape. Over those next few days, the friends went out for dinner and spent time talking and catching up. On February 9th, Neil was staying at Dashiell's apartment, and he received a phone call early in the morning from his father. It was to tell him the U.S. police wanted to arrest him, and he needed to come back to Nottingham. Dashiell offered to take him to King's Cross train station to catch a train back to his parents' home, but Neil refused and said he would get the underground tube himself to King's Cross. Dash walked with him to the underground station just five minutes away from his apartment and said his goodbyes to his friend. On his walk home, however, he got a phone call that turned everything on its head. Neil and I walked to Labrick Grove Tube Station, the underground, so that he could get a tube to King's Cross by himself. I said my goodbyes to Neil, um, shook his hand and slapped him on the back, and, you know, that <laughs> was a difficult moment, but I tried to wish him well, and, um, and I made my way back, walking back to my house. Uh, I received a telephone call from Detective Sergeant Flood. I returned to the tube station, and um, I climbed up to the platform to, to talk to Neil. Uh, I told Neil that um, I had received a phone call from the police, that they were looking to pick him up in London, and um, I suggested that he could accompany me back down, to the, back down to the pavement outside the tube station where the police had requested that I meet them. Um, the defendant said, <laughs> Neil said, that um, he didn't want to talk to the police here, that he'd rather return home, and he asked whether there was some other way of getting off the, uh, getting off the platform. I said that um, you could leave the station on a train or down the stairs. I left Neil on the platform and I walked down to the pavement. After a few moments, the, uh, the police arrived. Um, one of the three remained with, remained with me on the, uh, on the pavement and the two other officers went up to the station platform. By the time police officers reached the tube station platform, Neil had already boarded a tube train. The train was stopped at Royal Oak Underground Station and Neil was located and placed under arrest on a provisional warrant after an extradition request from the U.S. Neil Entwistle's status as a person of interest had been replaced with the prime suspect in the murder of his wife Rachel and baby daughter Lillian. When arrested, Neil had a torn out section of newspaper in his pocket. On it were advertisements and contact details for escorts offering sexual services in the London area. Neil also had a notebook with him, Penned in his own handwriting were paragraphs detailing his sorrow and grief at losing his soulmate and his beautiful daughter. On the other side were two letters written in the third person, still in Neil's own handwriting. The letters were to UK press outlets advising this true crime story has enough material for a week of news and how Neil wants to sell it to the highest bidder. Neil Entwistle was not all that he seemed and his carefully curated mask was dramatically slipping. Within hours of his arrest, Neil appeared at Bow Street Magistrates Court in central London. Neil spoke to confirm he would not voluntarily return to the U.S. to face charges, a stance he quickly retracted, 
agreeing to extradition back to Massachusetts the following day. On February 15, 2006, he was flown back to the U.S. A day later, he was led into Framingham District Court for his arraignment hearing wearing a bulletproof vest and in handcuffs and shackles. Rachel Entwistle was delighted to move back home to Massachusetts. She wanted her daughter to have her family around her as she grew up. Her sudden cold-blooded murder in the bedroom of Six Cups Path ended her dreams for her daughter and the life she planned to give her baby. Lillian was just nine months old, crawling and on the verge of her very first steps. Her young innocent mind would never have the opportunity to create her own dreams for her future. Two years after their brutal murders, Neil Entwistle would stand trial, accused of placing a gun up to the head of his wife and against the chest of his own baby and pulling the trigger. There were no signs of an intruder inside Six Cubs' path, no broken locks, smashed windows, or evidence of a forced entry. The house was a typical family home with no indications of struggle or of robbery. When police officers did discover the bodies of Rachel and Lillian, there was no murder weapon at the scene, no gun casings on the bed or on the floor. Their bodies had been covered from head to toe before their killer walked out of the bedroom on his way out of the house. He made sure he locked the doors to the house and lowered the garage door before he left. From the moment Neil Entwistle arrived on the doorstep of his parents' home in England on February 23, 2006, he maintained his innocence, but his story didn't add up. There were too many holes, too many areas he hadn't covered his tracks. His secrets were beginning to be uncovered. When his trial finally rolled around in June 2008, it was anything but predictable. A sudden, dramatic shift in Neil's versions of events as to what happened stunned the courtroom into silence. Deep-seated lies were exposed. Secret lives were revealed, and the truth was far darker than anyone knew. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.